Section 24 of Psychological Warfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger. Section 24. Part 4. Psychological Warfare After World War II. Chapter 14a. The Cold War and Seven Small Wars. Part 1. The period after 1945 has turned out to be considerably more turbulent than most Americans expected. Though the victory over fascism and Japanese militarism has proved to be psychologically and historically complete, the struggles between the victors have developed such mistrust and bitterness as to create a present-day equivalent of the Thirty Years' War, rather than a period of peace as it was understood by educated men of the 19th century. Although with many other military and political phenomena, psychological warfare has been thrust into a period of no war and no peace which has proved to be extraordinarily difficult for western men to deal with either emotionally or intellectually such phrases as churchill's term the iron curtain and walter lippmann's coinage the cold war have become a part of civilized speech throughout the world they have obscured almost as much as they have explained it is entirely conceivable that an adequate description of the present historical period will only be written after the forces now operating have ceased to be significant. At a future time it may be possible for serious and reflective men to determine what happened in the middle of the twentieth century. Recognition and Delay One of the preeminent factors in the psychological and opinion aspect of the turmoil of the mid-twentieth century has been the very sharp contrast between the time on which a given event occurred and the delay between the occurrence of the event and the final understanding of that event in their own terms by the strategic policy-makers affected, and the successful recognition of the event in policy papers looking toward a further future. The political and strategic character of much recent military history has therefore been a grotesque comedy of errors, ridiculous if it were not so deadly serious, involving the lives of the major urban populations of the world." An event such as the liberation of Indochina from Japanese military occupation in 1945, met competently and reasonably by the standards of an anticipated world of 1946, which unfortunately never materialized, led to the frustrations, bloodshed, deceit, and warfare of the late 1940s, and by 1954 became partially intelligible as a facet of the free world's struggle against communism new interpretations of policy and propaganda polemic writing has been done concerning the role of propaganda psychological warfare psychological strategy and comparable operations in many instances the polemics have involved the presentations of two sides each of which was right one side maintaining that the old-fashioned world of free sovereign nations meeting in a parliament of man as constituted in the united nations could and should use the realities of traditional power politics as a guide to the present and to the future, and should avoid the hopelessness, terrorism, and fanaticism of chronic ideological war. The other side, with equal merits, has often argued that the ideological war is here, that its deniers are the witting or unwitting sympathizers or appeasers of communism, that their realities are outmoded, and that the United States must face up to a crusade which will end in annihilation or death for either the communist system or the constitutional democratic group of states. What such polemics overlook is the terrifying probability that events may happen so rapidly 
that no one on either the communist or anti-communist side is capable of assimilating the new datum such as the development of the hydrogen bomb the death of stalin or the appearance of israel among the nations until well after the event has occurred the occurrence of public events in all past civilizations has involved a considerable number of public agreements on the major hypotheses concerned as pointed out earlier in this book the antagonists in older wars usually though not always knew what the war was about Today, the spiritual psychological logical and scientific inconsistencies and paradoxes within each system are so deep as to make the definition of long-range goals almost impossible any one goal such as the establishment of peace the appreciation of an international system of alliances against aggression the maintenance of national sovereignty the protection of a free enterprise economy the assurance of self-determination to a non-self-governing peoples or the like may if emphasized contradict the concomitant goals which support it communist and anti-communist psychological events each of the two major systems has strengths of its own the communist strengths are sometimes too apparent to americans so much so that americans exaggerate communist power and overlook serious deficiencies in the economies and the political character of the communist group of nations the communists can suppress dissidents with a fanatical party line the price they pay is the abrupt shifting of that line as international situations change the communists can appeal to youth by their dogmatic faith that they are the masters of the probable future of the world they risk much if this faith does not pay off and if the world's youth sometimes turns against them because they promise too much and deliver too little the communists operating from an allegedly material basis offer psychological and spiritual values of a perverted kind but they have very considerable propaganda value they give people a chance to sacrifice themselves to work for causes greater than their individual personalities something to die for and an apparent understanding of history yet the communists also risk psychological exhaustion and cynicism among their elite cadres as well as among their mass followings in the next chapter concerning strategic information operations of the united states government in the foreign field there will be further discussion of the psychological strengths of the free world we will say at this point that in light of the strategic and military contexts of the post-war period the free world has had the advantage of modesty relaxation and elasticity among americans even among intelligent americans it is frequent to find the assumption being made that the chief strength of the free world consists in its legal rights and its democratic political processes rather than in its actual not merely formal toleration of many points of view and its actual relaxation of the populations under its control since the free world is not committed to victory as much as the communist world it can afford more defeats without a corresponding loss of morale since the free world has not promised a utopian future it can go from the reality of the nineteen fifties to whatever realities the nineteen sixties or the nineteen seventies may bring without a sharp letdown in morale or widespread heartbreak among its most gifted advocates in cold war terms the free world is committed to fighting but not to victory while the communists are committed to the actual though remote promise of triumph for their system throughout the world the citizens of the united states can therefore contemplate the survival of the u s s r or its annihilation and replacement by a democratic russia with equanimity their soviet opposite numbers group for group and class for class cannot be as detached from the struggle over all of us there hangs the entirely uncertain future raised by probable use of atomic bombs hydrogen bombs and other novel weapons 
a future about which former Governor Adlai Stevenson felt so gloomy that he said another war would end civilization. The rejoinder can, of course, be made that if another war would end civilization anyhow, win, lose, or draw, the United States might as well disband its defense forces now and enjoy life for the few short years that remain. The Cold War. In some respects, the Cold War is not novel. It resembles the intercivilizational wars of the past, in which competing civilizations, with definite moral and political foundations, fought one another for final survival. This kind of warfare is very different indeed from struggles waged between nations which have a common civilization and which have a common interest in the preservation of that civilization. The Americans of the 1950s are waging a struggle much more like that between the Protestants and Catholics in the years 1618 to 48 than they are to the Civil War of 1861 through 65 or the Revolutionary War of 1775 through 81. In some respects, we Americans are back all the way to the fight between the Aztecs and Cortez, or the struggle between Chinese and Chams in ancient Annam. What Mr. Lippmann calls merely a Cold War is something deeper, bigger, and worse than any war Americans have ever known before. The only parallel to it was the struggle between settlers and Indians on our own frontier. Our battles with the Indians at least had the advantage of never leaving us with a hideous dread that the American Indians might sweep a white and Christian civilization from this continent. Nature of the Cold War The Cold War is therefore a struggle, the beginnings of which can be found at any one of several dates. 1848, 1917, and 1943 are some of those given, which is now being waged between non-communist states and a communist group of nations. No one now living can speak with assurance of the outcome. Only the most foolhardy of optimists could visualize a world in which the better aspects of each system would be developed, and the factors common to each would be underscored and strengthened as supports for a peace-seeking international system under the UN. The struggle is larger than a war, because it comprises pre-belligerent, belligerent, and post-belligerent activities, both in global wars and in a possible general war. On the communist side, the techniques include sabotage, revolution, conspiracy, and fanatical organization. On the anti-communist side, a family of paramilitary weapons is gradually being developed and may or may not be thrown into the struggle. No war was ever as bitter or uncertain as this one, because war, whatever its demerits, at least commits the nations to combat and to victory. War has the supreme merit of decision. The Cold War does not. People have to fight it without knowing what it is or what they would get out of it if they could obtain the advantage. Origins of the Cold War In retrospect, it is easy to argue that the communist system has been fighting all non-communist systems ever since 1848, that the Soviet system has been in a moral condition of war with all other governments since 1917, that the democratic Soviet alliance against fascism powers during 1941 through 45 was a sham and a fraud, covering a three-cornered war, and that, therefore, attempts at a good alliance between non-communists and communists were shams, mistakes, or frauds. This is easy to say in the 1950s. It was not so apparent in the 1940s. It can even be argued that Yalta, and everything for which Yalta stands, was a tragic mistake, and yet a blessed one. If the Western powers had not attempted to deal amicably with the Soviet Union at Yalta, the Western peoples, already hypersensitized in matters of conscience, might have attributed to themselves and to their posterity an unbearable burden of guilt. We and our children might have gone down fighting while wondering in our innermost hearts 
Why didn't we make a real try to avoid war with Soviet Russia? Though the Tehran and Yalta agreements have been violated by the USSR almost from the moment they were concluded, it can be argued that the Western world was wise in experimenting with appeasement because it liberated our consciences for future struggle. No one can possibly argue that we did not try to get along with the communist system, that we failed to offer communists a reasonable share in the world of power politics, or that we threatened the communists with aggression during the course of our anti-fascist struggle. For better or for worse, we did try to get along with them. We have failed. Why have we failed? The failure seems to be much more on the side of the communists than on the side of the free nations. Though it is possible for left liberals or hypercritical intellectuals to find fault with the U.S. and British position in this respect, or that, short of extreme nitpicking, it must be argued that the communists jumped the gun on Western powers in almost every case. Tito, while still in agreement with Moscow, proved implacable toward the constitutional Yugoslav government and the church as they existed before 1941, while Roosevelt was still living. The Lublin Poles prepared a savage double-cross of the London Poles. Whether communist action arose from a lamentable fear of our own aggressiveness, or a Machiavellian plan to conquer the world, does not, at any time, matter very much. What matters is the almost indisputable fact that in many parts of the world the communists undertook the initiative against the anti-communists. The first edition of this book, Psychological Warfare, was written in 1946, and published in 1948. The second edition is being completed eight years later, in 1954. Any reader who contrasts the two editions will see at a glance that the author, although suspicious of communism, had no real anticipation of the fury or seriousness of the communist attack upon the non-communist world, nor of the strategic arguments and responsibilities which the free world would therewith be forced to accept. The Cold War and the Actual Fighting as late as 1948, when the talented and bold-minded Lieutenant General Albert C. Weidmeyer was Deputy Chief of Staff, the U.S. Army's psychological warfare facilities at the general staff level consisted of a few paper assignments to colonels in operations and in training, together with your author as a part-time consultant and one girl stenographer to keep the files. By 1954, these numbers were multiplied by the hundreds. Each of the military services has accepted its responsibility, so that by 1953 there was not merely one Army Psywar system, but there were at least five separate organizations in the U.S. government in different places and at five levels directly concerned with these problems. A curious division of responsibilities not anticipated by the Creel Committee of World War I or the OWI of World War II arose in the Washington of the Cold War period. While the military establishments were given jurisdiction over propaganda activities connected with actual combat, other propaganda activities were kept largely in civilian hands, though simultaneously the direction of civilian policy at its very highest level became paramilitary through the influence of the National Security Council. In other words, most of the national foreign policy decisions at the highest level have been dictated in recent years by strategic considerations. They have been National Security Council decisions— not cabinet-type decisions of the kind which might have been made in the years of William McKinley or Warren G. Harding. Yet, even though these decisions have been strategic in type, the propaganda implementation of these decisions has fallen for the greater part on the State Department and on the economic aid program facilities, not on the military. The military have been pretty strictly confined to those aspects of propaganda which directly pertain to combat areas. By 1953, 
U.S. leaders had begun to understand the situation with which they had been dealing since 1947, and in light of that necessarily belated but correct appreciation of their own position, the William Jackson Committee began to recommend that propaganda policy be written not as something self-contained, but be considered as an integral part of every other U.S. government decision possessing world situation or news impact. The Cold War and the Home Front among editors, professors, officers, officials, and other experts concerned with foreign affairs, there has been frequent lamentation that the American people did not take the great struggle of our time more seriously. The contrary could be argued, at least by way of contrast. If it is true that the United States is engaged in a major struggle, if it is further true that this struggle has no visible end, if this struggle threatens all of us, and our children as well, with lifetimes of tension and violent deaths under ultra-destructive weapons, one may quite reasonably ask the question, which is the better reaction for the bulk of the American population? Normality, emotional health, mild irresponsibility, and the stockpiling of nervous and physical strength for a time of trial which may lie far ahead? Or alternatively, tension now, worry now, responsibility now? fatigue now, all the way through from the uncertain present across the bitter and perilous future to the months of near Armageddon, which may lie fifteen, twenty, or thirty years ahead? Sadly, and seriously, with no attempt at cleverness or mockery, a staff officer could argue today that the American people should leave their worries to their leaders so as to be strong when the time of trouble comes. In the field of civil defense, for instance, it is grotesque to spend billions on offense and little on the saving of American lives. On second glance, this may not be so grotesque after all. The technological advance of fissionable and thermonuclear weapons is so rapid, the development of guided missiles and other carrying instruments so swift and so unpredictable, that a 1955 model civil defense system might become a fool's paradise by 1960. If this be true, it is better to live as well as we can, to maintain the profession of arms at an adequate level, to hope, quite irrationally, for the best, and to let the dead of the future bury their dead as best they may. Alternatives to Victory and Defeat In a Cold War, as opposed to a war, the role of the armed services is to deter the enemy, not fight the enemy, and the purpose of the government is to achieve an accommodation, in the sense of an arrangement satisfactory to both sides, not a victory. If this is correct, serious reappraisal must be made of the U.S. Psi War position as well as of our strategic thinking. The alternatives to victory and defeat are forms of survival of the competitors. The entire health of each competing civilization matters. It is obvious enough to Americans that we must remain prosperous, free, constitutional, democratic. It goes without saying that we must, as far as our individual fortunes permit us, retain our belief in God and derive from religious beliefs those spiritual strengths not available to the communists. What is not often raised is the equally important factor of the conquest of probability. Wars are much more often won by people who are sure they are going to win than by people who know that they would like to win, but who think at the same time that they will probably be defeated. The overconfidence of a Cortez or of a Mao Zedong may seem insane to many of us, with the passion for security so prevalent in individual and national lives, both the Western powers and the individuals comprising them grotesquely exaggerate the margin of safety which they need in which to survive. Part of this springs from the fact that much of our civilization is not forward-looking, that neither young Americans nor old Americans have a clear-cut or hopeful picture of what the world should be, will be, and must be by A.D. 2055. 
On the communist side, it is frequent, but not universal, to discover that the best communist cadres are made up of men who are dead sure that communism will win, who are equally sure that communism does not have to be right in order to win, and who are sure that, objectively and scientifically, whatever that may mean, the communist system is almost certainly destined to succeed. If communism cannot get out of succeeding, the responsibility of the individual communist becomes bearable. He is still seriously and tragically responsible for the expediting or the delaying of the inevitable, but he does not take the mantle of God, or Karl Marx, and state that this is the world as he wishes it to be, and that the world of his desires will come into existence if, and only if, he fulfills his personal responsibilities to the utmost. In Asia, perhaps more than Europe, there are many persons who are turning toward communism, not because they think it is good or just, or even because it is powerful, but simply because it is likely. Every individual in his own life has known that he cannot undo the passage of time, the aging of his body, the death of his loved ones, the loss of opportunities which might have been seized, or even his own death. In their individual lives, men of all nations perform the feat, characteristic of the human being, and apparently shared by no other species of life, of living from day to day in a constant reconciliation of the past and present with their own estimate of the probable future. At times in history, that which should happen seems to be unleashed like spiritual lightning, and men rally in frenzy around causes which for the year or the decade seem inspiring, terrifyingly beautiful, and within human reach. Through most of history, that which is apt to occur provides a more sober guide to the future, and men prepare to live in accordance with its standards. In the battle of probabilities, the sigh war of the Western powers has been weak, high-pitched, and uncertain, while the insistence of the communist themes has been as monotonous and hypnotic as a jungle drum. For better or for worse, the communists have broken a path through to what they think to be the future. We, of other nations, have not. The chief element of anti-communist victory, practical, sober expectation of a certain and final downfall of the Soviet system, has thus far been lacking on the anti-communist side. The communists, on the contrary, have unreasonably, provocatively, and untruthfully raved, screamed, shrieked, and lied to bring about that better world which, curiously enough, their most effective cadres consider to be an inevitable world. Thus the UN prisoners held by the communists during the Korean War were subjected to a constant bombardment of communist propaganda concerning their personal responsibilities before history and the opportunities which they would have to serve peace and mankind, as these noble concepts are set forth on the red side. End of section 24